This PBS NewsHour podcast is made possible in part by the following. This PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Their scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is changing lives everywhere. Find out more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. It's been a hectic week in Washington as the country barrels toward a government shutdown and hearings begin in House Republicans' impeachment inquiry of President Biden. We turn now to the analysis of Brooks and Capehart. That is New York Times columnist David Brooks and Jonathan Capehart, associate editor for The Washington Post. Welcome. Good to see you. Hi, I'm good to see you. Let's start with this shutdown because we are, as Lisa reported earlier, hurtling towards another government shutdown. And Jonathan, they have become more commonplace in recent history. We are here not because two parties don't agree, but because Republicans can't agree amongst themselves. Could this have been avoided? No. And it's not Republicans argue, arguing uh, amongst themselves. It's House Republicans arguing uh, amongst themselves. It was fascinating to see that clip that Lisa played of the speaker yelling, saying, do you want me to, to surrender to the Senate? As an American, yes, please, surrender to the Senate. Why? Because over in the Senate, there's a bipartisan effort at a continuing resolution with Republicans and Democrats coming together. They're supposed to vote tomorrow, uh, and hopefully it will vote out and put pressure on the speaker to take yes for an answer and keep the government open. But the, but the, the speaker has been um, in thrall to the, the MAGA minority within his major majority that has been able to scuttle rule votes, scuttle continuing resolution votes, and not just by one or two votes. The last vote they just did, 21 Republicans yeah. voted it down. So, I, I, yes, we're going to a shutdown. It was inevitable. The key question is, for how long will this shutdown last? David, what is Speaker McCarthy's strategy here? To Jonathan's point, it seems to be to placate that minority of far-right Republicans so far. Yeah, I really don't. I have trouble seeing how this ends. Because in theory, it would end when uh, he did a deal with the Democrats and they got Republicans and Democrats together. But that seems to be an impossibility. So this really could go on a long time. And to me, it's, uh, I wouldn't say it's inevitable, but to find the fork in the road that led us to this spot, I'd go back to the 1990s and, and back to Newt Gingrich, where you really had the beginning of departure of make-believe departure from reality. And compared to today's crew, Newt Gingrich looks like Plato and Socrates, because uh, they actually had a plan. They, they wanted to cut government spending, and they had a, a plan to cut. And John Kasich, and, who was then in the House, wanted to cut government spending. Here was the things he wanted to cut. These guys today, they have no plan. They're not going to touch taxes. They're not going to touch entitlements. They're, it's just all make-believe. And it's a lesson that once you start pretending to other people, you end up lying to yourself. And so I think they firmly believe they're doing something constructive here. And I have sympathy with the idea that the deficits are too big. They're just not serious. And they've taken flight from reality, and it's become make-believe. Lisa did a wonderful job of touching on a few of the potential impacts here, because we talk about shutdowns like it's a political problem, but this it hits home in people's communities and in their lives. And we know we've seen White House economists and private banks come out with the kind of estimates that say, oh, we could see reduced growth and, and so on. But Jonathan, how are you looking at the potential impact of this? What does this mean? Well, I think when people think of shutdowns, they think of 
national parks being closed. I, on my way here, I saw the bicycle fencing going up around the Lincoln Memorial because that will be closed if the government shuts down. But if you look at the, there's a, a, a private Facebook group called FedFam. And it was started, full disclosure, by a friend of mine during the, during the 2019 government shutdown, which is the longest government shutdown in history. And it was federal workers pooling their resources together in terms of information about where to get food, where to get assistance. Um, some people offering help, mo most people looking for help. That Facebook group now has more than 30,000 members. And over the, the weeks leading up to what is possible, what is going to happen tomorrow, they've been gaining 200, 300 new members a day. There, folks like, like to rip Washington, talk about the bureaucrats, these faceless bureaucrats are doing this or doing that. These are real people who are among the American people who live paycheck to paycheck. And a lot of those federal workers, yes, some will get back pay once, they're able, once the government reopens, but a lot of them are contractors who will not be repaid. And I'm thinking about cafeteria workers. David, the economists seem to agree that the economy is strong enough right now that a short-term shutdown would not do much lasting damage. The longer, of course, it goes on, the more potential damage it could inflict. Uh, but when you look at this fact that this economic context today is very different from the years of shutdowns past, right? There's a, a number of different headwinds ahead. You've got um, auto workers still on strike. You've got the restarting of federal student low payments next month as well. Are Republicans you talk to, are they worried that this could actually critically hurt the economy the longer it Some goes down? Some of them down? are. I mean, the, the Republicans are genuinely dis divided on this, and it's a mystery to me why they can't find a strategy to go forward. Gas prices are also shooting up. Yeah. And there was a study that found that it would cut GDT 0.2% per week. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't sound like a lot, but you add up a bunch of weeks, and that really does begin to sound like a lot. And then there's the psychological effect on, on how businesses feel comfortable, how much consumer confidence there is. And we're at that moment, people have been predicting an, a recession for like a year and a half, and we've been fortunate enough to avoid it. But we're now at the precarious moment where we, it seemed before all this that we could slip into it, so that could happen. And then the, the other blow, aside from, you know, we should focus on the WIC people you and Lisa talked about, people are really vulnerable and just need support. But then there's the overarching matter of public trust. The Republican Party used to be the party, you weren't thrilled by them, but they were the business party. Mm. They knew how to run things. Mm. And that seems like eons or light years ago. And so one of the things that's bound to do, sow distrust in institutions, distrust in government, is stopping your work in the middle of nothing. <laughs> like, that's what's gonna happen. And so the, the blow to public cynicism, the, or the increase in public cynicism, the blow to public distrust, those are psychological things that will just cause more people to be even more contemptuous of, of government. Speaking of the Republican Party, there are three events this week I want to get both of your takes on that kind of give us insight into where the party is right now in the larger moment in political history. Uh, we had, of course, the top seven Republican candidates for president uh, participating in the second debate in California. The stage did not include the leading candidate, Donald Trump, who held a rally in Michigan instead, addressing auto workers. And then on Thursday, House Republicans held their first public hearing uh, for the impeachment inquiry into President Biden, where no new evidence was presented linking him to any impeachable offense. Jonathan, what do all of these pull together kind of tell us about where the party is and its priorities? Um, there's a, um, a, a GIF that I love to use for moments like these, and it is a dumpster on fire. 
that is literally that is what the Republican Party is. You look at what we're talking about in terms of the shutdown. No leadership from the Republican Speaker of the House to prevent a government shutdown. On the other side, you have the Republican Chairman of the House Oversight Committee leading a sham impeachment inquiry where their own witnesses came in and said there's no evidence here yet. And then on that debate stage, a debate that I tuned into and turned away from because I couldn't understand what anyone was saying because everyone's talking over each other. And what I could hear was offensive uh, on so many levels. And then on top of that, a leading mem the leading candidate by 43 points in the latest NBC News, well, uh, NBC News poll um, above Ron DeSantis has four, four indictments and 91 counts in four different jurisdictions. The Republican Party is it's either aimless when it comes to governing or it's going down the road to autocracy when it comes to the presidential level. And quite honestly, as an American, that breaks my heart because this, is, this country has been run on a two-party system, but it requires two strong parties. And right now, there's only one. David, how do you look at it? Well, I, I agree with a lot of what Jonathan said, except for we only have one strong party, because this is working for them. <laughs> All the stuff you mentioned, that's totally working for them. To me, one of the symptomatic moments of this week was a story in my paper today. The Club for Growth is a very conservative, sort of libertarian, free market, uh, Republican conservative outfit that has been spending millions of dollars to run ads against Donald Trump. And a document, their own internal document was leaked, and it turns out they found that those ads are doing nothing. Mm -hmm. That Donald Trump, that some of the ads, if they mention January 6th, it, it helps Donald Trump. And so I think the upshot of that is that this is Donald Trump's party. Uh, Donald Trump's party more than ever before. And it's also true that he is politically stronger than he's ever been before in a political sense. So he, you know, the Washington Post poll was an outlier, but he was leading Joe Biden by a chunk. And so we have to think seriously about why is what they're doing working? Because by what I know and by my own aesthetic and moral sensibility, it should not be working. And, you know, the Republican donor class is now in a panic to try to lure Governor Glenn Youngkin from Virginia into the race, which is just fantasy land. Like, what does Glenn Youngkin bring that Nikki Haley doesn't bring? It's not finding some magic figure who can take down all the Donald Trump. It's Donald Trump's party. And it's working. And so that... Well, that's a scary thing, frankly. Mm -hmm. Look, before we go, in the minute or half or so we have left, I did want to ask each of you if you wanted to say something brief on the passing of Senator Dianne Feinstein, an absolute giant, an icon in politics and the Senate. David? Yeah, I, I learned from the, the obituaries today how what a rough childhood she had. She had a mom who had some mental health issues, flew into sulfuric rages, and what a hard childhood she had. And then even up to age 45, her political career looked to be over. But that childhood had prepared her with the resilience to be tough at the horrible moment in San Francisco when the mayor was and the uh, council member were killed. And it, it enabled her to be tough in the Senate. The one thing we all knew about Diane Feinstein is she was a very tough person. I saw a Willie Brown quote from California said, she shouldn't be a politician. She doesn't play any games. She's just direct. <laughs> and and that, is, that was true of Dianne Feinstein. Jonathan. Um, it, you know, Senator Feinstein, I really came into my consciousness uh, in 92 when she was elected in the, quote, year of the woman, um, part of that, the vanguard of women in the Senate. And then she was at pivotal moments 
in our in our history. The the Clarence Thomas hearings, the 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 investigation into torture. Yeah, she was she was tough as nails. Um, she was an excellent senator. She was also someone who was sort of a, a, a moral rock and a and a conscience. She was she was and she, and she was a centrist, and not willing to be swayed one way or another, but was willing to talk and work and compromise because she took governing seriously. We lost a giant in American government. So many followed in her footsteps as well. Our thoughts are with her family and loved ones. Jonathan Capehart, David Brooks, great to see you. Thank you. Thank you. You too.